Welcome to the Glyndebourne Podcast. I'm Katie Derham, and in this podcast, we're focusing on a brand new opera, Hamlet. Australian composer Brett Dean and Canadian librettist Matthew Jocelyn are retelling Shakespeare's most famous tragedy. Lord Hamlet, In today's podcast, we're eavesdropping on a specially recorded conversation between actor Samuel West, who's played Hamlet to great acclaim for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and British tenor Alan Clayton, who's about to take up the role of the Danish prince in this new opera version, which premieres at the 2017 Glyndebourne Festival. Now, here's Alan Clayton and Samuel West talking Hamlet. Hello, my name is Alan Clayton and I'm very honoured to be singing the role of Hamlet in Brett Dean's new opera at Glyndebourne Festival this summer. It's not been performed before and so I've never sung the role before but I'm delighted that Samuel West is here. Hello. Who has performed the role of Hamlet um, and knows what he's talking about. I played it at uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company for a year in 2001-2. For a whole year? Yeah, a year and three days, 132 performances. Good Lord. Well, that probably sounds quite like quite a lot to you. To, to actors who do eight shows a week, that doesn't sound like a lot. That's insane. I think we're doing eight over about three months. I know you are, yeah. <laughs> I looked at the website. Um, but that's great, because, I mean, you'll be able to time your illnesses in the gap, yeah. <laughs> so I, like, like I did. I haven't missed a show yet. It's very useful. So how are you looking forward to it? I can't wait. It's going to be It's something that's been brewing. Mm. And more for actors, obviously, because if you get to a certain age and you're stage actor you know people say oh have you thought have about you thought about it? it yeah and also you know what what lines you're going to have to say or most of them because they've been written down for 400 years whereas right. presumably the ink is still drying on on some of yours literally yeah i've got the last scene yesterday so the fight scene and the one where pretty much the entire cast dies yeah and i don't Lots know how many corpses. spoilers i'm allowed but there are two extra corpses uh in the final scene they are people who die in hamlet as we know it Right. But they're, they're dying at a slightly different time. So I, I add to my body count, which is great. Excellent. But yeah, so literally, I think Brett, it said at the end, Brett finished it in Melbourne on Christmas Day. And uh, we, we should get the, the vocal score in the next uh, couple of weeks. And your version is in, did you say 12, 12 scenes? 12 scenes, yeah. So I think Matthew and Brett got together originally and sort of said, OK, if we're allowed five or six of our top moments, what mm-hmm. would they be? Mm-hmm. That's a good and idea. then they crossed off the ones that they both had. Because they knew that was a you know right. have to have the, we have the to include this scene yeah okay and then and then went away again and I think Neil Armfield the director sort of came in as well and said you know having having done it at um, his theatre in Sydney um, mm-hmm. twenty twenty five years ago with a intimidatingly stellar cast um, <laughs> yeah they've all gone gone on yeah Kate things. Blanchett as a Philia yeah, I mean great thanks very much yeah. Jeffrey Rush as as a ratio yeah I know he's, where is he <laughs> and then and then they sort of whittled it down so I think. Um, 15, which then became 12 scenes in, in total. And Brett was very aware that he needed to split it with a, uh, the, the traditional dinner interval at Glyndebourne. So, of course, you know, you've got, yes. suddenly got an 85-minute interval which can scupper a, a piece unless you're really thinking about how to 
how really to pace it. We did a version of Hamlet that was pretty full, and the director, Stephen Pimlock, God rest his soul, no longer with us, sadly. We, we had to divide what was basically four hours and five minutes into, into three. Right. And uh, he came up with something which is really clever, and I recommend it if anybody's ever doing a really long Hamlet, which is to do just act one before the first interval. So you start at seven, mm. uh, at which point everybody's sitting down thinking, I haven't had a, quite a long enough drink and, and work seems a bit recent. And then you sit down and you get a very quick 45 minutes and then the lights come up and you go, oh, oh, well, that wasn't so long. Right. And you have your drink and then you sit down at eight to an hour and 40 minutes of the greatest Shakespeare ever written, including all the big soliloquies. Mm. And then you have another drink and then you sit down at 10 and it's all fighting and corpses That's for the fantastic. last hour. And we managed to do it in three hours 55 once. So that was the running time we put in the program. <laughs> it was a bit like nineteen ninety nine, <laughs> trying to trying to say you've got change out of twenty quid. Yeah. It was basically four hours five minutes, but um, it seemed to go quite quickly. And a lot of people who sat through it, it was their longest show, certainly their longest Hamlet. Yeah, and said it seemed to go quite fast. So choosing the moment where you put the intervals is really important. How do you anticipate the character of the man turning out? I don't know because it's. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing, isn't it? I mean, in, in reading about it and, and watching documentaries and interviews with different actors who've taken on the role, everyone says, well, my Hamlet is different from everyone else's because it's me. It's, and, it's and because it, you, yeah. it speaks so much to each of us, I think, anyone who reads through it. And, of course, in, in my situation, I'm actually reading it through two other people's... So mm. uh, the original text, of course, and then what Matthew has put together um, in his libretto, and then how Brett has treated that mm. text with the music... So by the time it gets to me, it's it's questionable whether I should be putting too much on it or whether I should deliver the... Well, they must think you're good casting, of course. <laughs> yeah. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But, um, but, the, but the wonderful thing is that I, I, went, I saw Brett um, two and a half years ago before he'd written a note of, of, of Hamlet's music. And um, he asked me to, to read through the, the famous soliloquy oh. um, because he wanted to hear it sat in my voice and, and what I made of it as a person mm. and... And so I went to his studio in Melbourne, and we and we I sat there and we spent the afternoon together, and he he played me some of his music, and we and he sort of played around at the piano and asked me to sing some notes, and so he got an idea of my voice and stuff like that. And what's been lovely is that since then we've been in regular touch, and whenever I've been in Berlin, where he lives with his wife Heather, he's come to see me in shows, and so we've 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 got to you know I think he's got to know me as a person and mm. my voice. He's written it as my strong points vocally, yeah. you know, it's, which is, this is fascinating. This is brilliant because we don't know who played Hamlet the first time. Right. But presumably Shakespeare did and would have written for him. Right. So you're basically treading, you're treading in those to... footsteps. You've, you've had this part written for you. Yeah. And the, the most important thing about Hamlet, it seems to me, as a character, is that however you want to play him, he's a modern man. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, it's a modern story to, to to state the bleed and obvious. When they fight at the end, they fight with foils and not, well, in the in the play as as written, they fight with foils and not ninth century Danish broadswords. And the things that Hamlet mentioned, you know, the the, the region kites in the air were those were birds over London in sixteen hundred. It's it's not really about ninth century Denmark. It feels like a, a, a modern man with modern problems thinking about things that are going on in the streets and the parliaments of, of his day. Mm. So the idea that it should be coined 
for you and now is is entirely in in keeping with the play that it should that it should feel like that. And we we did our ours in modern dress because we wanted it to feel like a modern play. Right. I was thinking about um, the the need to uh, excite people anew with a story that they think they know. There's a scene at the end, as, as you know, where the gravedigger appears, generally out of the floor, and starts talking about making a grave for somebody. And you think, OK, so this person is a suicide, and you realise that it's Ophelia. Mm. She's never named. And then Hamlet and Horatio come in, and start talking about um, you know how he got away from the pirates, and then Hamlet sees the grave and picks up a skull, and says to Horatio just before he says, um, "Who's this? This mm. is Yorick's skull." He goes, um, "Oh, te- you know, tell her to paint an inch thick to this favour. She must come." Meaning, you know, doesn't matter how many how much <laughs> makeup you put on girls, yeah, yeah. you're going to end up looking like this eventually. Um, and it occurs to me, I directed the play once that the funeral procession coming on know that they're carrying Ophelia. The gravedigger and his assistants know that they're digging a grave for Ophelia. Everybody in the audience knows that that's Ophelia's grave. Horatio, who's been in the court when Ophelia killed herself, knows that she's dead and being, and being buried that morning. The only person in the entire theatre who doesn't know that that's Ophelia's grave is Hamlet. And then he jumps in and starts making these gags. Mm. And if I was playing Horatio, I'd be going, oh, um, um, oh don't, no, I'm t- I've, got to, I've got to tell you something. Oh, shit, there's somebody coming. Um, listen, listen, it um, doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. And now we think of that as the gravedigger scene. Mm. But at the time, how shocking yeah. must that have been with everybody going, oh, mate, yeah. please don't, please don't make those gags. Yeah. And then um, Laertes comes in and says, too much of water hast thou, dearest Ophelia, and so I forbid my tears. And Hamlet goes, what? And has a moment, you know, does a huge double take. Mm. And that's such a brilliant scene. It's such a clever thing to do with a, with an audience, with a globe, you know, because the, all the audience sitting around going, God, that's her. And the, yeah, the, the one person. Yeah, the one person in the whole Carries on auditorium. joking along. and You forget that. I mean, it's easy to forget because we just go, oh, it's that scene again. Yeah. You have to try and wake up those... Those um, resonances, those memories. The the, the crowd at, at Glyndebourne won't be won't know what to expect. I mean, I say crowd at Glyndebourne, nobody would know what to expect given it's a premiere. Yeah. And we did a, a, a excerpt from or sort of music from from the piece, which was a co commission with the BBC Symphony Orchestra last year. exciting because when you play Hamlet your your first thought is you know I want to avoid all the sort of floppy shirted noodle romantic <laughs> staring at um at, at skull stuff mm. and treat it like a new play mm. and you know maybe he won't die at the end 
And you really can do that because it is a new play. Effectively, it's a new work. And, mm. and so, you know, you can, you're, you're not, no, nobody's going to be sitting there going, when does the bit where he does this come up? Mm. So what the, what's the libretto like? It's 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 fascinating. It's brilliant, and and it's um, searching through all sort of different editions because of course there's so many versions, mm. and that's something that Matthew's uh, Matthew's done is is to include material that won't be familiar mm. or as familiar with a lot of the audience. So from the the so-called bad quarto, which is which is you won you yeah, you know about don't you? Yeah, it's a oh, it's a brilliant thing. So, um, it's 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 thought to be a pirated copy, right? Um, by the person, what they call a memorial reconstruction, okay, uh, which is three years before the uh, the second quarto appears, and it's thought to be remembered by the person who played Marcellus, who's one of the soldiers at the beginning, right? And they know that because, well, they suge- they suggest that's true because all of Marcellus's lines are right, <laughs> and most of the scenes that he's in are right. And none of the rest is right at all. <laughs> at least he remembered his own. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite the only bits he gets right that he's not in are the gags and the bits that rhyme, right. which is really interesting because that's yeah. you know those are the things that stay with it. Yeah. So like the most famous line in all literature becomes "to be or not to be, I there's the point," and you go, "Yeah, I kind of see what you're up to." There. Yeah, but you could you really uh, yeah to die to sleep is that all I all. And they, you know, you're eight lines into the speech, but after two lines. <laughs> um, and this, I think, was toured because the theatre's closed because of plague, possibly. I'm slightly fuzzy on this bit. But I think they toured it and it hadn't been written down. And so Marcellus just went, oh, yeah. Oh, and there are fascinating things like um, Polonius is renamed Carambis. And that's not interesting until you realise that Polonius means of Polonia. In other words, Polish. Right. And... Polonius is is a Danish councillor. He's basically the the prime minister in in Denmark. And there's quite a lot of talk in the play about people going to Poland to fight them. Fortinbras goes through through, on his way to Poland. So to have a Danish councillor called Polish clearly just confused people. And somebody just went, can we change his name? Can we call him (laughs) Karambis or something? He said, yeah. Go on, do it. Doesn't matter. And so, and it's a rehearsal change. Yeah, from four hundred and fifteen years ago, which I just love. It's like sort of picking up the stage manager's copy of a yeah. of a of a, an opera, sort yeah. of with stage cues and yeah. all that sort of thing. Just and like finding the prompt copy. That's it's amazing. I think it's a great thing for this. And actually, Matthew's been very good in, in the play within a play. When the players arrive, there's a as a scene between Hamlet and the players where they start playing with the fact that the lines have changed. So <laughs> the first player will take on a very serious tone and to be or not to be, aye, there's the there's the point. And he's then corrected by one of the other actors. He goes, uh, there's the rub. Uh, um, so that's, so it's, it's, I think it's a great thing that it's it's referencing yeah. the fact that it's... it's um, yeah, it's good. And, and that's that was also one of the, the big things I know that Matthew and Brett have talked about is that they wanted to keep it... They wanted to keep the, the playful side of things and the, and the humorous side of the play. There was a, a very interesting day um, about 20 years ago when... Uh, reviewer for the Daily Telegraph, who will have to remain nameless, published um, a review of a particular performance of Hamlet, which will also have to remain nameless, saying, this at last is Hamlet as Shakespeare intended. <laughs> and that week, the Arden Shakespeare published 
the first quarto, the second quarto, and the folio, all of which are extensively different, and none of which we know is necessarily the one that Shakespeare wanted. So whatever Shakespeare's intentions were, they weren't that. Exactly. And if, if he was a performer, he was used to sort of, you know, and we've talked about this with Barry Quarto, he's used to sort of adapting to, to changing things. Someone's ill, someone else is doing that role tonight, you he's know. He's a working man. He's a working man of yeah. the theatre. Of course he is. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think it's great. And also I know that Brett said that he didn't want the audience sitting there waiting for it. Oh, how's he set this vocally? You know, and so to just yeah. to have a, yeah, and because you know he's he's using light motifs. You know, there are these sort of recurring themes that are coming back, and the, and the whole piece opens with a the quite a striking dissonance, which which is used throughout, and um, yeah, that that's just a way of sort of introducing slowly drip dripping the idea of light motifs and 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 sort of attaching various musical um, ideas to these these bits of famous text, which is which is no bad thing. I think mm. it's sort of. Um, and it and it does. I think it's it's freeing dramatically. I think as, as, as you know, as you just sort of alluded to. More generally, just the the part. It's you know, it's impossible for me to sit here and, and talk to you about it. Really, you having done hundred and thirty odd shows and stuff, and I I haven't even started rehearsals yet. But because it has been such a already you know sort of two or three years of of building up to this and and being part of the especially being part of the creative process in a very limited way, obviously, but sort of contributing to the workshops last year that we yeah, did at Glyndebourne and stuff. To see how it's gonna, you know, and, and and each time there's going to be that that's that little something that's going to be new for the first time. It's going to be the first day we're all together and we sing through the piano. The first day that we meet the other characters, the other actors. The, the first day that we we start putting it on its legs on on in the in this in the rehearsal room. And then of course the first time we have the orchestration and and the, the. So this is why this is why I love working with musicians so much because I I directed a couple of operas including uh, a cosy for Eno. And I made some faltering speech on the first day about, you know, my thoughts for them. The singers nodded, in, in, you know, trying to look interested. <laughs> and then Mark Wigglesworth stood up and said, finale of Act One, please, and gave the downbeat. And they sang it from memory. <laughs> and my mouth dropped and I thought, I just have to turn up, really, don't I? I mean, it's just like Mozart every day for the next five weeks. But that's the other thing, of course, is, that, you know, you have the actors, they will go to, you know... You know, my girlfriend went off to first rehearsal today with a, a script in her hand, and she, you know, she'd read through her stuff, and but she, you know, she would have spent all day with it in her hand. Mm -hmm. And in our contracts as singers, we are, it says you will turn up knowing it off completely off book, which people might not realise. And so we've got mm -hmm. a week of music calls when we arrive at Glyndebourne this this April, but we'll be expected to know it all mm -hmm. by then. And I have to say, if we could put that into the as a director, if I could put that into the you would do that, would you? of course. I had a conversation with a director once who said, I said, I think I think the advantages outweigh the disadvantages, the advantages of getting people to learn it by yeah. the read through. And she said, there are no disadvantages. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just the fact that we're able to look at each other now yeah. because we know each other and we know what we're talking about. You know, here we are talking. But if we had our face in books, now, yeah. it wouldn't be as good a conversation. Yeah. To state the obvious. Yeah. I think it it, it, it makes it much easier. And when you've got so many things... You know, musically, you've got... You've sort got of plenty to think about. Exactly. Well, exactly. Rather you than, need you know, what comes next. Yeah, exactly. Um, One of the things that's very exciting and also slightly distressing, everybody who plays Hamlet on the stage convinces themselves that they are good casting. <laughs> uh, and that's right, because to a great extent they are. I mean, more and more they're not necessarily male uh, or young, but the, the wit is going to be the funniest, the... the philosopher is going to be the deepest the athlete is going to be the best swords person um and they're all going to fail at different bits of it right i i never got the the, the praying scene right now might i do it pat ever in 132 tries and why was that um 
Well, sort of boringly, I suppose, because I couldn't quite make sense of heaven and hell in the mind of a sceptic. I'm not saying that Hamlet doesn't believe in heaven and hell, but I don't think he believes in it quite as literally as the rest of his society does. Mm. Otherwise, he wouldn't be quite so confused by, um, by, the, by the ghost. So I, I think probably something, something like that. But there are just scenes that you find very difficult. Some people find the closet scene hard. Some people find the nunnery scene hard. Mm. Uh, that, they're extremely hard scenes. And the fascinating thing about playing a part which brings you t- to the edge of your, well, certainly in my case, your, 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 your physical and emotional capabilities quite quickly is that, first of all, it makes you grow, and secondly, you fail in a different place each night. I, I used to come off and think, oh, the first half's gone about as well as it, as well as it could have, and then the second half was a disaster. And then I only really had a, a lot of joy when I when I'd finished it. Right. So people say, "Did you enjoy it?" I said, "I really enjoyed having done it." Yeah, I, I loved it in retrospect. Yeah, I remember taking a taxi away from my dressing room at the, at the Barbican after the last night. It was a beautiful morning and I stuck, stuck all my stuff, all my talismans and my makeup and everything in the, and drove away and, and felt an exhilaration the like of which I'd never had uh, again after, after a part, just thinking, God, I did that. But mm. at the time, it was really difficult. And, and I expect it will be for you because even though it's been written for your voice, though, you know, if it's not a stretch emotionally and, <laughs> and vocally... Then it won't ever ring, ring true. Well, in it's any, not, you're yeah. not playing the part properly yeah, right? because exactly. he's because he's a man who is called upon to act in a, in a way that his his conscience tells him he shouldn't act. Or you know that's one that's one way of looking at it anyway. Mm. Given that Hamlet has you know the most soliloquies famously, mm-hmm. and, and and when you when you sit down to pace them as a as a as a performer, what what do you what process do you go through because for me it's it's taken out of my hands yeah i suppose i would ask you and what i asked myself which is am i talking to myself or am i talking to the audience if i'm talking to myself then um it, how am i doing that am i talk if i'm talking to the audience which is what i did mm-hmm. can they answer back can they help i actually did get an answer eventually and during performance 129 i said am i a coward and somebody at the top of the circle said, yes. I was like, this is fantastic. Yeah. I leant forward and I said, who calls me villain? He said, me. <laughs> and I thought, this is brilliant. I'm finally having a dialogue. I knew if I asked these questions properly enough, somebody would eventually yeah. answer. Um, Not just the voices in your head. No. No, but, <laughs> but that's how you learn soliloquies, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, that's why you keep talking. Yeah. Because you have, you, know, you have to sing or talk to yourself in order to cheer yourself up or, or try something out or work out that you're not mad or possibly think that you are mm. um if you're doing all of the soliloquies they they come at different points and interestingly they stop in act five of the play i used to wear nike trainers in uh, in our production uh, and when i came back i was wearing a suit and nike trainers and i and i thought it's right it's the, they're the right trainers because frankly just do it you know, he's been to England. <laughs> he's put off this murder yeah. he comes back he doesn't talk to the audience anymore he doesn't delay. Right. He says, "Okay, bring it on. If it if it if it be now, then then tis not to come." Yeah. And kills Claudius and then dies himself, and everyone else dies, and that's it. Mm. I tell you, if you feel if you feel uneasy during rehearsals, I would say that it probably means that you're in character, <laughs> because 
If you think of yourself as somebody who probably studied philosophy at Wittenberg mm. along with Horatio, who's being asked by your warrior father to commit murder, something that you've been trained to think is barbaric, you're basically miscast. I, I used to describe it as um, as Gladiator with Woody Allen playing Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's going, what is this? This is like, this isn't philosophy. Um, I'd pay so much money to see that <laughs> Exactly. But that's sort of what Hamlet is. I mean, he wants to be this revenge hero. Yeah. He's read about those plays, and that's mostly what plays are until he comes along. And then Shakespeare writes this different play in which he puts a Renaissance man, a very thoughtful, mm. peaceful Renaissance man, the glass of fashion and the mould of form, and then says, yeah, you'd be a revenger. And he goes, well, all right, really? Honestly? The spirit that I've seen may, may be a devil. Mm. You know, he, uh, couldn't I do a play instead? Can we, can we get the players in? And there's all sorts of distractions yeah. on the way. And eventually, you know, he gets on that revenge train and rides it to the buffers. And then, and then he, the one scene I, I, I always missed was when he turns to his father at the end and says, right, OK, Claudius is dead. So's your wife, my mum. So's my girlfriend and her dad and her brother and two rather good school friends of mine. <laughs> Happy? <laughs> yeah. You know, this play you put me in? Yeah. I'm a footnote in history. And in comes Fortin Brass and takes over the kingdom. You know, it's all a mess. Mm. It's brilliant. It's brilliant mess. <laughs> so we should talk about madness. Does it make sense to say, Does it? do you think Hamlet's mad or feigning it? or do you, What's your idea? I mean, I'm sure you... I won't hold you to this, but... What do you think well, as you I, head into it? I was chatting um, with Brett and Matthew and, and Neil, and, uh, the director, and I, I sort of misspoke, not to um, not to be too political, uh, when I said I, I, I felt that he was a man, uh, Hamlet was a man of inaction, and it's completely wrong. Of course, I don't mean that he's 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 the ultimate man of action. You know, look at what look at what happens by the end of the of the piece. Mm -hmm. But what I meant was that in in thinking and thinking and thinking, he challenges himself so many times to. You know, he could almost persuade himself of anything. But, Absolutely. Um, and so you know, the, the famous, the famous American. Uh, this is the story of a man who could not make up his mind, <laughs> and people laugh at that. But actually, it's not a bad summation. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I would take it as this is the story of a man who thinks too much. Right. If you want a one-line, yes, yeah. summation of it, but it's not a bad way of putting it. Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, so I, I think you know, talk of madness and. Of course, you know he, he says, to, "I did love you. I did love you once." You know, to Ophelia. So there's there's that side of thing. I mean, oh, yeah. The only time he really seems to lose it in the play that I, I mean, that he becomes dangerously unstable, whether you call that madness or not, is with the two women. Right. It yeah. Seems, well, with Gertrude and the yeah. He's... Gertrude and and Ophelia. Those two scenes that the closet scene and the nunnery scene. Mm do seem to mirror each other. I mean, there's a terrible sort of deep misogynistic hatred of women that that grows up. There's lots of images of maggots and, and, and disease and, and you know, he says, takes off the fair rose of it and, and of, from her forehead and sets a blister there, which is the syphilitic mark of a whore. Right. Uh, I mean, Hamlet just gets really down and dirty with that, mm. with that stuff. And I think... You know, you know, he's very disturbed at the idea that his mother has remarried and it spoils the relationship with his girlfriend. Mm. He says, you know, you can't have children with me because because um, virtue cannot so inoculate our old stock, but we shall taste of it. 
You know, it's basically they'll, they'll come out misshapen if we yeah. have kids. It's very vile imagery, but and, and obviously very disturbed. But that was the only time when I was, because obviously you know the, the classic story is that he feigns madness in order to avoid detection yeah. while he's being a while he's being a revenge hero. But that was the only time where I felt absolutely uncontrolled. And um, I, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a there's a bit where Hamlet says. Okay, I shot the prime minister, but you remarried. Who's worse? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in his head, his it's, mum's worse. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that, you know, that's what I mean about persuading yourself what you like, really. And yeah. and and those moments of of uncontrol or, or non control come from from exactly the same place, you yes. know, because you've thought about something so much, so many times that you've pushed yourself in, into into physical feelings of hatred or of anger that are completely um, unwarranted, really. Yes, that's exactly it, I think. You, you, you've turned it over and over in your head. I mean, that's what the soliloquies are. It's a very good way of, 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 of seeing them, I think, as... Stewing. Yeah, something that you... I mean, whether you talk to the audience or not, can, can I sort this out? Will saying this over again, or maybe singing it in a more considered or, or less considered way, will this answer my question? Will this relieve my pain? Mm. Might this be uh, an answer to my dilemma? I've got one very last quick question for you. Go on. Will listening to it being sung be very strange for you, knowing knowing the piece as, as well as you do and knowing the, mm. the text? Because it won't have the same rhythm. Or... No, not at all. I mean, that is a good question. I can't say. I mean, I'd, I suppose I will never think, oh, get to the end of the line already, <laughs> because <laughs> because that's not how one listens to opera, is it? I mean, mm. that's the, the thought is continued on the scaffolding of the music until until the end of the phrase. Mm. And, and if with a, a musician as fine as you, you know, the phrase will... Will will work until it's over, so I won't be thinking. Yeah, I get the point. What's the next <laughs> bit? Um, uh, but I imagine that the tempo and the storytelling will be utterly different from from a from a play. Mm. Um, so I expect it'll be a completely new experience, which I'm really looking forward to. So thank you very much for listening to this uh, special Glyndebourne podcast yeah, in um, in advance of Hamlet this summer. Come and come and watch it. Um, I can't wait. Yeah, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be really good, you know. Thank you for listening to this special conversation for the Glyndebourne podcast. The music extracts you've been listening to in this podcast are from Brett Dean's From Melodious Lay, commissioned and recorded by BBC Radio 3, and given its world premiere by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Joshua Weilerstein at the Barbican on Tuesday the 1st of November 2016. With thanks to the Barbican Centre and the Corporation of London. Music, courtesy of Boozy and Hawks Music Publishers Limited. And don't forget, you can delve deep into other operas from this season and in our back catalogue of Glyndebourne podcasts, everything from Mozart to Britain, Strauss and Verdi. Every podcast explores in exquisite detail the beauty of some of the greatest works ever written. I'm Katie Derham, and I'd be delighted if you'd join me again for the Glyndebourne podcast.